There's a reason why big name entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and in London and in startup hubs around the world fail forward. You know, when they fail, they don't go and move back in with their parents in the basement and uh, watch cartoons. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> they they fail forward and people read about them in, in like TechCrunch and stuff and they say like, how has this guy just raised 60 million euros when his last company was a complete failure? It's because investors realize and investors care about this more than most people because like I said, it's their own money they're giving you. Investors realize that you don't go back to square one when you fail. Welcome to the Ron Real Podcast. Are you dreaming of changing your life through opening a business? Or are you curious what obstacles entrepreneurs had to overcome in their journey? Then you're in the right place. My name is Agnes Billig and I'm your host. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Raw and Real podcast. Today's guest on the show is Thomas Wilkinson. He's a software developer and founder of PitchDrive. Hey Thomas, thanks for being here with me. Hey, no problem. Happy to be here. Can you tell us what PitchDrive is about? Yeah, I guess it's a good place to start. So PitchDrive is a company that I founded last year in 2018. And basically this really came out of my own struggles as a founder. So what I noticed with starting companies in the past was that raising, you know, raising early stage funding, the money you really need to like get your idea out into the world and get going is way too complex. Basically, it's good for the startups to raise money quickly and easily so that the founders can just get back to doing what they do best and keep growing their business. And it's good for investors to invest in like a big diversified set of early stage businesses because the maths shows that this is going to be best for their portfolio, uh, you know, in terms of making more money in the long term. But for some reason, it's a very long and complex process to actually get the money from one party to the other. So PitchDrive was really coming out of this idea that, you know, it should be a lot simpler. There should be a simpler way to raise early stage funding as a founder. So that's kind of the reason why we started up, sort of personal frustration. And since then, we've gone on to develop our web and mobile platform. So uh, startups come along, they make an application on the web. We go through a like an evaluation process through with them. You know, we do some calls, due diligence, that sort of thing. And then if they get the green light, they go live onto our mobile app. So angel investors currently worldwide, I guess I can say, since we now have one in America as well. Uh, okay. So worldwide investors then see this startup and can invest instantly with a single tap. And actually, one thing a lot of investors have been asking is that they trust our system so much that can we just let them auto-invest? So if PitchDrive likes a startup, they automatically invest. And because you mentioned you evaluate companies, so what are the criteria? Yeah, good question. So um, there was uh, the one big first one is like a basic due diligence never hurts. We almost founded a, we almost funded a company where the founder wasn't even doing it full time, which we didn't realize. It was on his LinkedIn that he had a full time job doing something else. <laughs> And we almost gave him 50,000 euros and he would have been like, oh, cool, cheers, <laughs> you know, and bought himself a new BMW or something. So that was that was a very fast learning that we took, um, you know, like a, a sort of due diligence, that sort of thing. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And then um, beyond that, we're looking for uh, entrepreneurs with a really scalable idea that really want to take it global. Investors aren't looking for you to build like a $5 million or a $10 million company, although that might be good for you personally. If you're going to bring investors on board, they want you to be trying to hit a home run. They really want you to be trying to take 
a worldwide market and build something huge because this is how they make money as well. And you mentioned that the process is so long. So how can you make it that fast? Yeah. So just to give a bit more context. So when I started Pitch Drive, uh, when we started, we had already very good relationships with a lot of angel investors through like past business uh, dealings and stuff like that. And it still took us six months to actually get money in our bank account. Six months. This is a really long time when you're starting a startup. And basically, one of the reasons for this, uh, there are some sort of hard reasons and some more soft reasons. In Europe, we're a little bit behind Silicon Valley when it comes to this sort of thing. We need lawyers to get involved. We need notaries uh, to sign everything and make things official. You know, it's, it's a very like hard legal and administrative process, which investors usually don't have time to do. And also on the softer side of things, it's quite interesting how investors are very good at making startups wait on purpose. It's actually usually the investor's advantage to wait as long as possible. Why is that? They, uh, yeah, they, they get more information about the startup. They, they see if you're still alive or not. They see if, uh, your plans are like coming to life. You know, are your numbers actually growing? Whereas a startup, you, you want the money straight away. You need it as early as possible where it's going to make the most difference. But investors are kind of the other way around. It actually, it helps them to wait as long as possible. So pitch drives simplifies this a little bit mm -hmm. and says, if you want in, you got to get in now. Otherwise the opportunity is gone. So we solve kind of both the hard and soft problems. So you put more pressure on the investor? A little bit, yeah. Um, but also to, to make up for this, we also, uh, we give them a lot of nice benefits. Like I say, we do all the due diligence and evaluation for them. We also make it really easy for investors to, uh, to syndicate and invest together. So a lot of angel investors usually don't do an entire round themselves. They'll usually want to go in with other angel investors. And so another nice thing we do is make it really easy for, uh, for investors to do that on pitch drive. And also, like I mentioned earlier with auto investing, we're seeing a lot of interest around this. You know, if, if my friend Jim invests, I want to be in. <laughs> so, uh, so you really see what your friends are doing. There's not complete transparency, but yeah, it's, it's all based around this idea that a lot of investment is done in syndicates. So you can see how full the round is, how close you are to finishing it off that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, it's going well so far. That sounds good. And uh, I'm curious also about your background because you took quite an unusual path from a study <laughs> in bioarchaeology to working in marketing and ending up in software development. So what's the story there? Yeah, someone's been reading my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, first things first, full disclosure, don't worry guys, I don't know what bioarchaeology is either. But apparently I have a degree in it. So, <laughs> so essentially, um, when I was growing up, I was always like, uh, a big storyteller. I love maths, but I always had this sort of dual love of storytelling. And when I looked to history and started studying history seriously, I mean, it's history is the greatest story ever told. It's the story of mankind and, you know, how we're all here. So I just fell in love with it. And that's kind of what led me to stud study archaeology at university. It didn't take me too long to realize that this was probably one of the three least useful degrees in the world <laughs> in terms of uh, like getting a job, being uh, successful in the traditional sense. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are people who can uh, sit out in a field for uh, like hours in the rain 
and uh, you know, like just dig up old bones because they love archaeology so much. But I'm not one of those people, so I also need the I also need the salary. So um, after my degree, I decided to very quickly leave the archaeological world behind me and do something that my parents could tell their friends about a bit <laughs> a bit more. Uh, so actually, the day before I graduated, I uh, decided to start my first company in uh, marketing and strategy. So it was a great pitch, you know. I was always a bit of a fast talker. So, uh, it but, but why marketing? That's a very good question. So, <laughs> I was actually um, I was actually watching a, a lot of Mad Men at that time, and basically I thought Don Draper was cool, and I thought like, yeah, I could do that, you know, with the whiskey and the clients and the boardroom. Just room. like that. Uh, it was basically that simple. And I would love to like hear when this podcast gets really big and you're interviewing the founders of Uber and Airbnb and stuff. I would love to hear if they <laughs> if they started out with like the exact same thing. Like, yeah, I was watching a TV show, thought it was cool. I wanted to do the same. Sounds so, like um, fun. Yeah, why not? So uh, follow your dreams, follow your TV shows. I knew absolutely nothing about marketing or strategy, but I had this vague idea in my head that Using all my connections and stuff from university with the student body, uh, I went to a big university with like 20,000 students. There, was, there must be some way that I could like help local businesses access this audience and uh, integrate the student population into like the local business sphere a bit more. Like I say, I knew absolutely nothing about marketing or strategy. So what I used to do is just go into meetings with this big notebook and like sit down and look at my clients. I actually got clients. That was the most surprising thing. <laughs> and I would say, so Agnes, what can I do to help your business? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So they would, they would start talking and say things like, yeah, so we need some social media marketing, uh, you know, and some content never hurts. You know, we need some content marketing, that sort of thing. And, and I would be like writing down all the words that sounded important and agreeing with them a lot. I mean, like, yeah. You've got to have social media marketing these days, you know? And then I would go back to my office and just Google what all these words meant. So <laughs> I think um, this really like, uh, so when I started this business, I basically treated it as my own personal like MBA, my own personal master's uh, degree. I said, I don't really care if I make any real money or not. I'm just going to do it for a year, see if I can learn as much as possible by doing, and then see if I want to continue after the end of that year. So, um, but I'm curious, so how did you get to your clients? Um, <laughs> I, I was actually lucky enough to, uh, to win a pitching competition through my university, like an enterprise competition. And part of the prize for that was, uh, some seed funding. So 3000 euros roughly just to get started. I think I already had a laptop, which was everything I needed. So I actually spent that on a gym membership as you might be able to tell. Okay. <laughs> And also what that came along with was an office space. So I was actually in a, a shared co-working space with several of the student entrepreneurs and also some other enterprises from the local community. So I actually met one of them in the shared kitchen originally because they were trying to have a serious business meeting, the two founders of this local tech company. And I was there on my first or second day being very British and trying not to disturb anyone, but I couldn't work out how the microwave worked. <laughs> so they were, they were talking business and I was like in the corner, like beep, 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 beep. And they kept looking over like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> and eventually we got to talking and uh, I guess I charmed them. 
So how did you end up going from marketing to software development? So I mentioned I put a sort of artificial 12-month uh, sort of timeline on this company because I said after a year, I'm going to reevaluate and see if it's still what I want to do or whether I've learned everything I can and want to move on to something else. I don't think I lasted a full year in the end. I think it was like nine or 10 months. And basically what I realized were a few of my clients started asking for websites and stuff like that. And at first I, I sort of pushed it all away. I was like, coding? No, no, I'm, I'm the cool marketing guy, you know? I'm, I'm not a geek, I don't do coding. And then I, then I saw like the budgets they had for these websites and how much they were willing to pay for someone who could code. And I very quickly changed my opinion on coding and how it's not actually geeky, it's actually the coolest thing you can do. So, <laughs> so I'm shamelessly admitting that I took my first steps into coding because of pure cold hard cash. So I got a proposal on Friday once if I could build a, a website for one of my clients. I cycled home. On my way, I picked up a four pack of Red Bull and went and sat down at my desk, closed the door and coded my first website that night in Microsoft Word. So, <laughs> okay. And how did you manage that? A lot of ferocious Googling. Basically, this has always been uh, my way. I find it best just to throw myself into things that I know are a little too difficult or, you know, a bit out of my depth and then just bank on the fact that a lot of people have done this stuff before. A lot of people smarter than me have done this sort of thing before. And a lot of it's probably online as well. So honestly, the first three years of my entire career were built on Googling stuff and, and then just using that knowledge to get people who haven't Googled that stuff to pay me money. Okay, so basically everyone can do it, just Google it. Essentially, yeah. The internet is honestly... Young people today have no reason to complain about having no opportunities. The, the internet today is the biggest single collection of information, tutorials, everything you could possibly ever want to learn is on the internet. Find something, find some people to pay you to do it, then Google how to do it. And uh, what was it like for you in general to raise money when you started with PitchDrive? So like I mentioned, we had a pretty good relationship with a set of angel investors already. Um, from the past, but it's still a bit of a weird dynamic because you sort of know these guys already and raising investment is sort of like half job interview, half, you know, trying to marry someone's daughter and they're seeing if you're good enough for them or not, <laughs> uh, especially with angel investment. So you can talk to VCs, venture capitalists as well, but these generally only look at bigger rounds. So like a million euros or higher, that sort of thing. And it's a bit different with those guys because they're not playing with their own money. They're just managing money for other people and their clients. Obviously, they have to show returns. But when you're talking to angels, these guys are normally ex-entrepreneurs who've built a tech company or a company and uh, exited it. And now they're giving back you know, to the community. So it's their own cold, hard post-tax cash that you're trying to get off them. So there's a very like emotional element involved in it as well. So, so would you say that's easier to get them than the VCs? I would say for sure, if you're an early stage startup, you should be 100% looking at angels. They're more fitting to your like stage. So they usually deal in smaller tickets. You know, you can raise 100, 200, 300,000 euros without having to go through the whole VC dance. VCs often won't tell you that you're too early stage because investors will never tell you to go away. They will always like keep you on the hook a little bit. 
But uh, yeah, you can probably save a lot of time by going to angel investors or even better by using Pitch Drive. And uh, according to your observations, what were the key points that investors were looking at when deciding to invest in a startup? So this is a really good question, actually, because investors are all, you know, unique people with their own uh, pasts and histories and decision making processes and stuff. But actually, after dealing with a lot of investors uh, for Pitch Drive, I've noticed there are some quite strong patterns running through all investors, despite how different their experiences are. And some of these are good and some of these are definitely not so good. And they have some quite interesting repercussions on the industry as a whole. Can you describe some of the patterns? Yeah. So one more secret one, if we're not talking so much about the business uh, specifically, but investors usually want to meet founders face to face before they invest in their company, which is fair enough when you first think about it. If you're giving someone 100,000 euros, you probably want to meet them at least once. Makes sense. Yeah, I know I would. And this has a lot of benefits. You know, if you're a team, investors are very good at sniffing out uh, friction between co-founders. You can usually play nice on the internet, even if you have to record a video to show people on your website. You know, the co-founders can seem very like best friends and, uh, you know, have a good relationship. But in person, if you're having a long, detailed conversation with an investor, they're usually quite good at sensing friction or unease in the team, which is one of the biggest reasons startups fail. So this is definitely a good point about meeting face-to-face with investors. But actually, another thing that I've noticed when investors meet founders face-to-face is that they often let their sort of subconscious biases take over a little bit, which is natural. They're also humans, and we all have subconscious biases within ourselves. And what I you guess f- so. Yeah. And what you find a lot is that investors will generally look to invest in younger versions of themselves almost. Maybe this is a slight oversimplification, but a lot of the time they can't put their finger on why, but they'll meet a founder and they'll be like, this guy just has the right energy. You know, he's a go-getter. He's a winner. These are all words that you hear quite a lot. And a lot of the time... Uh, what I've noticed sort of as a fly on the wall looking into this process is that they will invest in younger versions of themselves because this is they know they were successful. So their brain subconsciously is saying, this guy reminds me of me. Hence, he is probably also going to be successful. So before you meet them, you should look for similarities. <laughs> Maybe dye your hair. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, um, it's I think it's one of the, the one of the reasons we have a lot of inequality in funding and that sort of thing. I know it's quite a hot topic at the moment why women, for example, find it quite difficult or can find it quite difficult to raise angel investment. And potentially, yeah, it's not something I know too much about yet. I'm sort of still sort of dissecting the problem in my brain a lot. It's something I think about a lot. But one of my theories so far is that a lot of angel investors uh, are male currently and a lot of the time there's this subconscious thing going on. This guy reminds me of me, hence my subconscious is telling me I think he's going to be successful. So you think that they don't believe in women because they cannot resonate with them on the same level? Yeah, and I, I, I have to stress this is completely subconscious. I think it's it's a very difficult problem to solve because it's not something it's not really a decision we make. I think it's more about yeah, like I say, it's it's the little instincts in our brain that are guiding us without us really realizing it. So 
I think this is one of the reasons why it's such a hard issue to tackle is because it's not really uh, a conscious thing. You know, nobody, you hear bad stories about women walking into investor meetings and then, you know, they say, there's no way I'm investing in you. I get the feeling this doesn't happen very often. I get the feeling what's a lot more common is, like I say, subconscious uh, biases and instincts that uh, lead people, man or woman, to invest more towards what they're familiar with in themselves. Would you have a solution for that? How to tackle that problem? One thing we did think about with Pitch Drive quite seriously in the early days was having completely anonymized founders. So you would see a startup, you would see how many, you, you would see the founders and what they've done and their track record, but you wouldn't see names or pictures or anything like that. And I think that's not the perfect solution. There were a lot of practical problems with having anonymous founders. It's like I say, as an investor, you want to know who you're investing in, which is completely natural. But so that's definitely not the perfect solution. But I think there's some progress to be had in this area. Well, it's a start, I guess. Completely, yeah. And I think Pitch Drive, one of the nice side effects is that funding will become a lot more objective because it's good for the investors as well. They just invest in good startups that are going to make the money regardless of what their uh, subconscious brain is saying. And uh, listen, you were through a lot of ups and downs so far. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about a failure that you experienced on the way and what were you going through then? I've actually run three companies in my life so far, uh, not counting sort of my personal company. And um, so after I became a software engineer for Cold Hard Cash, I, uh, <laughs> I quickly actually fell in love with building software itself. I realized as a marketing guy, I'd actually got quite good at talking about other people's creations and really selling theirs. But for the first time, I got the bug, the addiction of actually building stuff myself and creating stuff myself. So over the next few years, I really got more experience as a software engineer. And that led to start uh, me starting a software development sort of creative studio called uh, Trinity, which was also based here in Amsterdam. So I would say, I think this company ran for about two or three years. Um, before dissolving it to start Pitch Drive. And this was definitely a very roller coaster company. It was my first real, I would say, hard experience running a company with, you know, a big team, yeah. lots of burn rate, the need to keep the bills paid and the rent paid every month. With my first marketing and strategy company, I was, like I say, always treating it a bit like a personal experiment, something I could just pull the emergency cord on and quit whenever I wanted. So I would really say Trinity Tech was my sort of baptism of fire where I made a lot of my worst mistakes and, uh, you know, really felt the, the highest highs and the lowest lows, which hopefully has prepared me a lot for pitch drive to, uh, to avoid the lows a little bit sometimes. And what were your lowest lows? So one thing you have to realize when you're starting a company is that when you're sitting around, we started Trinity with three guys. So when you're sitting around a table, you know, with some Uber Eats, uh, you've got some Mexican food with you and you're really thinking about, you know, dreaming big and planning out the next few years of your life. You have to remember a few things. Nothing is ever going to go as well as you think it is. That's just the general rule of business. So whatever your financial projections are, whatever your plans for the future are, your hiring projections, you know, however many clients you think you're going to get or users you think you're going to get, 
you're probably not going to do that. You know, it's probably real life gets in the way. Things take longer to build than you expect. Clients get sick or they don't pay or that sort of thing. So really you have to, you have to steal yourself. You have to get resilient very quickly that you're going to make plans. They're going to fail. It's okay. <laughs> Secretly, that's what we're all doing. So, um, you know, you're not, it's not a, it's not a personal failure that you, uh, you didn't hit your target in the first six months of your company, that sort of thing. So actually the classic problem where this manifests a lot of the time is things like cash flow. I mean, the very lifeblood of a company. So when we started uh, Trinity, we raised a very, very small amount of money just for initial capital to, uh, to literally turn the lights on in the office, hire the initial team members. And we actually had our first client on day one. I actually took a freelance client that I was going to work with and snowballed it into, uh, into starting this agency. So on paper, this is a pretty strong prospect. You know, we had good developers that I knew very well. Uh, we had our first client and then, you know, life just sort of gets in the way. <laughs> so what happens? So the first project was designed to take two months. And after that, uh, we'd be able to move on and focus on another project completely. I think the first project took, I would say between 13 and 15 months. And, <laughs> and to this day is not still quite complete. <laughs> so um, it sounds like an extreme case, but I, I think this happens all the time in business. Things on paper are a million times simpler than the real world. You, you really have to plan for the worst, even though it might seem quite uncomfortable. And all you want to do is, you know, dream big and think about what color you want your Lamborghini to be. It's going to leave you quite unprepared when you're sitting across the table from an employee that you had to hire and then fire three months later because you didn't have the, you know, the cash flow to pay them. Uh, you know, it's not going to be good preparation for moments like that. So there was quite a big underestimation of the workload, um, did that change somehow in the way how you work now? Yeah, I think my big rule now is don't give time estimates ever. <laughs> Never give yourself a deadline. I think, like I mentioned, it's really just a case of naivety. When you start your business, especially if you were young like I was, you you can read as many business books as you want. You can watch as many uh, you know, like YouTube series on how to start a business in five easy steps, that sort of thing. And nothing is going to prepare you like actually doing it. There is nothing. And believe me, I read a lot about starting a business. I watched a lot of stuff about starting a business. Uh, I thought I was prepared. But like I say, when you're sat across from someone, an employee who placed their trust in the business, they really wanted to build together and you thought they were a great fit. So you went ahead and hired them. You know, if you, if you're sat across the table and you have to fire them and tell them to, they have to go look for another job and they start asking, you know, how am I going to pay my rent? You know, no book or podcast can prepare you for that. Makes sense. So I would say the best thing you can do, which maybe sounds a bit contradictory to what I said earlier, is is go out and start. If you're really serious about starting a business, you have to start a business. You know, maybe you don't have to, you know, file it and register it and make it official, but you have to start building a product or getting people to pay you to do something. There's no learning. There's no university course that can make up for it. You just have to do it and accept that it's going to suck. You're going to suck at it, you know, to start with. This this myth of like the 20, 21-year-old like Uber founder, you know, like 
guys coming out of Stanford in, in California and they're like hyper intelligent and they start companies because they have insights that older people just don't understand. It's all a myth. Uh, <laughs> the reason investors invest in 21 year olds is because they have no wife, no kids, no wife or husband, no kids. Uh, you know, they have a low burn rate. They're willing to sleep on an airbed in an apartment and eat noodles three times a day. So they're very cheap. <laughs> Seems like you've done your research. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've maybe lived it as well for a few years. So yeah, like the best thing you can do is just accept that you're going to suck and just go do it anyway and hope that either the universe is kind to you or that the people who you will wrong along the way and the problems you will cause you know, we'll, we'll sort of understand that you're just starting out. You really want to do this right. And you're trying to improve to be a better founder and to hopefully build a better company in the future. So what did you learn then from failing? So obviously, uh, when we talk about failures, there's a lot of like small practical things you'll learn along the way. Well, for example, don't give unrealistic deadlines to clients and stuff like that. Little things like this. Like I say, if there's anybody watching this podcast who's just heard that, don't give tight deadlines to clients. You're going to write it down in your notebook and you're going to try to remember it. And then you're going to start a business and you're going to give a deadline to a client and miss it. Like I say, you, you can only learn these things by failing the hard way. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of like sort of small practical stuff like that. You don't go back to square one. Even if your entire company fails and you completely dissolve it, there's this sort of dangerous myth, like a thought in a lot of founders' minds that starting a company is a coin flip. Either it, it goes insanely well, you sell out, you make millions, you never have to work again, or you go back to square one and you've wasted three years of your life. And actually, this isn't the case. You know, when starting a company, it isn't like a, a binary yes or no, success or failure. So even though you've dissolved your company after three years, and it's a quote unquote failure, uh, in your eyes, it's going to feel hard. And from a financial standpoint, yeah, absolutely. You're probably going to be back at square one. You're not <laughs> taking anything good from there. But actually, if you, if you study it and if you're the sort of like proactive person who's always looking to learn from their own mistakes and to, to grow from that, the experience that you've gained, uh, during those, you know, oh, during the three years I ran Trinity, like I say, the experience I gained was invaluable. The people that I met directly led to me starting my, you know, my next company, Pitch Drive. So, you know, the lessons you learn, uh, the connections you build, there's a reason why big name entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and in London and in startup hubs around the world fail forward. You know, when they fail, they don't go and move back in with their parents in the basement and uh, <laughs> watch cartoons. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> They, they fail forward and people read about them in, in like TechCrunch and stuff. And they say like, how has this guy just raised 60 million euros when his last company was a complete failure? It's because investors realize and investors care about this more than most people, because like I said, it's their own money they're giving you. Investors realize that you don't go back to square one when you fail. You know, you, you keep experience, you keep the lessons you've learned, you keep the specific knowledge in a field that you know, you get to learn extremely well. I know more about startup fundraising than 99.9% .9 of people on earth because I, I have to. I've been learning about it so deeply for Pitch Drive. I'm still learning about all the hidden intricacies about how the, how the system works. So the fact is that even if Pitch Drive fails, I'm not going to, you know, 
go back to my parents, although I, I do like cartoons sometimes. <laughs> I'm not just going to go back. You know, you fail forward. I, I know more about this incredibly important thing than virtually anybody else on earth. So the, the knowledge that you've built up during that time, it naturally lends itself to starting again and starting again a lot better, uh, you know, from a wiser, stronger, slightly older position. There really is a lot of stress on people to hit home run, a big home run in their 20s, because, you know, that's what success looks like. You know, it's a, it's a college student who has a brilliant idea. You know, it's Mark Zuckerberg, basically. Yeah. But actually, the mean, the, the average age of successful uh, funded entrepreneurs in the last few years in Europe, and by successful, I mean they've raised more than a million euros and their business is still alive, is something like 56 or 58 years old. It's really like... That's quite high. Yeah, li life is long. You know, you, there's a reason these guys are doing so well. They have so many failures to look back on and build upon. So a failure is not, you know, a, a black hole in your life. It's like a building block that you can build yourself higher on the mountain with. So it's kind of like a step up, you would say. Yeah, exactly. It's, it also depends a little bit on your personal perspective because some people take failure really hard, which especially when it becomes to entrepreneurship is quite natural because your company really is an extension of yourself. You know, you're, you're basically like an artist or a musician at this point. You pour your entire being, you know, every waking minute you're basically thinking about your company or all of your effort goes into growing this thing, this baby, this idea on a napkin that you've turned into a team of 15 people and is getting bigger and bigger. So if that fails, it's quite normal for people to take it very personally. It, it attacks your ego directly because you feel like a personal failure. So how would you say to someone that they should get up or what's the point that is pushing you to get up again? So I think... One thing to say here is that, you know, getting up again and moving forward with your life doesn't always mean starting another company straight away. So like I mentioned, like when you're uh, building a company, one of the big problems you have is opportunity cost in your head. You know, as a founder, one of the, your biggest fears is, could I be spending this time climbing the corporate ladder or could I be spending this time backpacking through Thailand? or building a pension and building savings for myself, or, you know, you could be doing a lot of things with, you know, with this time. So sometimes failing and then immediately restarting another business is not the best way to go because you haven't given yourself enough time to digest the past few years of your life and understand really, is, is this the best move for me next? Because you only get to live these years once. And I think this affects entrepreneurs a lot harder than other people because there's very little career stability. It's not like you can crash out of a company age 35 and immediately slide into a senior position in Deloitte. It, it doesn't look very good on your uh, CV. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, it's, it's something that's really important to think about. You know, I, I built this business. Ultimately, it failed, um, you know, hypothetically. Did the lows feel as bad as the highs felt good? You know, were the lows worth the highs? and vice versa. And how, how am I dealing with this failure now afterwards? Is it, is it crushing me? Is the responsibility, you know, making me miserable? Because ultimately, you know, if that's the case, if, if you look back over the past few years and you found 
the lows were very low and the highs were only just bringing you level again. Maybe, you know, being a founder isn't for you because building a successful company shouldn't be the goal of your life. Building a successful life should be the goal of your life. And your company is just one part of that. So I think if someone has failed and they're looking to uh, get back in the game, in a weird way, my advice would probably be take a holiday, go somewhere cheap, sit on a beach for a few weeks and really, really digest the last few years and think, do you want to, do you want to go for this again? So basically do a lot of self-reflection and then see what comes up. Yeah, exactly. So a company can, like building a company, like I said, from something that's just this idea that you and one or two of the guys are talking about and you can't stop talking about and you're WhatsApping each other constantly and you hire your first people and you build this into like a real team in an office and and you see people that you hired coming up with ideas of their own and you know your employees are spreading their wings and flying. Honestly, so far in my life, this has been one of the most exhilarating you know, and thrilling rides I've ever been on. I, I love, I love the feeling I get when I see that I've really like built something uh, that has value in the world, and that other people are like realizing the mission and jumping on it with me, and it's sort of becoming a bigger and bigger thing. I can imagine. Yeah, but one thing you have to realize is like starting a company is not a joyride. You have to enjoy it, but it's a responsibility. Pitch Drive is not here for my entertainment. You know, your company is not there for your entertainment. Every employee you hire, every euro you take from an investor, this is responsibility that's going on your shoulders. And the more and the bigger the company gets, the bigger the responsibility. You know, CEOs of big startups don't spend, you know, all their all their weeks like on yachts in Monaco, lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills. You know, it's it's uh it's not glamorous like that. It's it's a lot of work and also like I say, these people are depending on you to steer the company in the right direction. So if you find that this weight is more of a burden than a, than a challenge to you, you really have to do some soul searching, like you say, and, and really think is entrepreneurship for me because it doesn't get easier. It gets harder as, as the stakes get bigger. The responsibility is bigger. That makes sense. And how are you experiencing that? Do you really feel that weight on your shoulders? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say day to day, I don't feel it too bad. I think all entrepreneurs have this sort of fear of failure, which is essentially what this responsibility and burden kind of is, is representing. Um, the idea that, you know, it's, it's going okay today, but it might all be gone tomorrow, that sort of thing. But the way I personally look at it is this is the challenge, you know, so. Fear of failure and the challenge are the same thing. They're the exact same thing. So like a lot of kids growing up, I used to play video games on my PlayStation with my friends and that sort of thing. And I remember once one of my friends came around and he, he had like this old bit of paper with some like cheat codes written on it. And we put in the cheat to make it so that your character couldn't die. And we were like, this, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. Like, this is going to be so fun. We can't die. And so we put the cheat code into the game and then five minutes later, all I could think was like, man, this is so boring. <laughs> you know, there's people shooting at you, there's stuff happening, but you're just stood there because you can't die. And I realized the, I mean, that was a very early age to learn that lesson, but I realized challenge is what I want in my life. You know, it, it's what makes it meaningful for me. So if there was no chance I could fail, 
I probably wouldn't find entrepreneurship interesting. And you mentioned the fear of failure. When was the last time that you experienced it and how did you experience that? That's a good question. So like I say, any entrepreneur that tells you that they don't fear failure is either lying or, yeah, they must be lying. <laughs> yeah. So like I mentioned, you have this responsibility. If you don't fear failure, then there really is uh, something wrong with how you're looking at your own business. I would say a lot of the successful entrepreneurs that I know, hopefully including myself, are the ones that, that see this more as a challenge rather than like a ghost uh, that, you know, haunts you and really, you know, see this as the game. You know, you have this incredibly difficult thing building a company and it's the hardest thing in the world to keep it alive and keep it growing. And this is what makes us want to do it. So I would say that the successful entrepreneurs are the ones that can mitigate it and even use it as fuel. And I think I'm quite good at that. But one thing that does get me is the, uh, what I call my spontaneous 3am reviewing sessions. Um, I'm curious about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not as fun as it sounds. It's, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's quite a common, um, pattern. You know, you'll, you'll have a big day. Uh, you'll have a lot of things to do. You'll go to bed in the evening a little bit fried and hope like, man, I, I hope tomorrow is easier. And then you'll wake up at 3 a.m. for whatever reason, because your mind is still going at 100 miles an hour. Sorry, 100 kilometers an hour. We're in Europe. <laughs> um, and yeah, basically you, you, you can't slow down and you wake up at 3 a.m. and suddenly all the, all the problems of running a business uh, are suddenly in your brain on top of you. And you know instantly you're not going to get back to sleep that night. And actually, this isn't unique to entrepreneurs. I'm sure other people have this as well. But I think the one way that this affects entrepreneurs, or me especially, in a, in a quite a unique way, is that when you're running a company, you don't just have a fire to deal with. You know, it's, it's not like there's a fire that you have to put out and then you'll be okay. When you're running a company, especially as it starts to grow and you get more and more, uh, you know, team members and, and revenue in and costs out and stuff like that. We're actually in quite a accelerating growth stage at the moment with new people joining quite regularly. So this is happening to me a lot at the moment. What you find is that you're dealing with dozens of fires all over the place. You, you know, you're never able as a founder to really, really focus for a long time on one problem because there will always be things in different areas of the business demanding your immediate attention. There are fires all over the place and you have to live with the fact that you have to ignore most of them. You know that, you know, it's a problem, you know, it's a fire, but you just don't have the bandwidth, the time, the energy to deal with it because there are other more important fires. That so you think out. it's best to shift your focus? Yeah, I think you need to, you need to prioritize very, very hard. And something I like to ask myself a lot is what's when I wake up, for example, is like, what's the single most important thing I could do to grow pitch drive today? And sometimes it's, you know, uh, solving a technical problem. Sometimes it's onboarding new startups. Sometimes it's writing a blog post, you know, stuff like that. But the key is, as a, as a founder, you have to be everywhere, at least for the first couple of years of the business, you are the business. Anything that is pitch drive is Thomas Wilkinson. So they're inseparable. <laughs> I have the logo tattooed on my chest. So. <laughs> and we changed our color recently. So I have to get that updated too. <laughs> okay. 
But yeah, so it's not like there's a problem keeping me up at night sometimes. The issue is there are dozens of problems and you know you have to ignore a lot of them. So that's why I like to call it the 3 a.m. review session because it, for some reason my brain and probably a lot of people's brains thinks it's a good idea. At 3 a.m. it's like, okay, great, we have some time. No, uh, nothing no to sleep do. necessary. Exactly, no, 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 nothing to do now. So let's quickly solve these, uh, <laughs> these 500, uh, you know, various fires from all over the business and that sort of thing. So in a way, I think it's, you have to, as an entrepreneur, really be comfortable with a lot less control than you are normally with a, you know, with a steady job or that sort of thing. You know, you have to accept that there are problems and then there are more problems. And some of them, you're not going to be able to solve everything. You don't have the answers for everything. A lot of them don't have right answers. So you need to focus on doing the best thing you can do every day. You know, what's going to make the most impact and uh, ultimately, you know, what's going to hopefully help me sleep best tonight. <laughs> As we close down, you have a key insight that you want our listeners to take away from this that helped you grow personally? So if I had to pick one thing out of everything, uh, I think we touched on it a little bit earlier. I would say if you're starting a company or you're thinking about entrepreneurship uh, and want to, you know, take some small steps into it to see if it's for you, I would say like constant self-reflection is, uh, is really the best gift you can give yourself. You know, things like, is this for me? Am I actually enjoying this? Do I find satisfaction from what I'm doing? Or is it mostly just trying to go from one crushing, you know, failure and disappointment to another without, uh, you know, going crazy and that sort of thing? Because really, like I say, this is really a life decision. It's a big, big part of your life. And your aim really shouldn't be to build a successful company. It should be to lead a good life. So if you're going to do this, you got to love the process. If your happiness is only directly tied to your success as a startup founder, I've got some bad news. Nine out of 10 startups fail. You've got to love the process. You know, you've got to love working your ass off for days and days only to find out that the your users hate the new feature you built. You know, you've got to love having a million different ideas and, you know, the possibility to go in a million different directions, you know, with no right answers, but a hell of a lot of wrong answers and finding out the right way to go through trial and error. You, you know, you've really got to love the process. So you got to love their journey, basically. Exactly. And that's also what life is about in general. So if I could leave you with one thing today, it would probably be that. Okay. Big words, big words. So uh, where can people find you online and how can they contact you? Christ. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> okay, so I'm not fantastic at social media yet, but I'm slowly learning. One of our employees is teaching me. Uh, so I'm on Instagram, Wilco92. But actually, if you have any questions or you want to shoot me anything, just feel free to drop me an email, thomas at pitchdrive. I usually get back to them quite quickly. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much again for being here with me today. And for everyone who's watching or listening, I would love for you to take the one key insight that you got from the talk with Thomas and share it on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you're active and tag us both in there. Thank you so much for listening. If you don't want to miss out on future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. And check out the show notes for a deeper dive on what you heard today.